This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. So welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Scott Kretschmar on finding meaning in sport and exploring how different experiences might contribute to this journey. Scott is a professor emeritus of exercise and sports science at Penn State University and one of the leading scholars in philosophy of sport. And in the first part, we had a lovely discussion around Scott's work on sport as a mere hobby and how these little hobbies that where we never achieve anything remarkable can still be very important for something that we imagine to be a good life. And so we started discussing the role of these different experiences, the different ways that physical education teachers, for example, try to promote meaning. We talked about the health promotion approach, where you give the different benefits of exercise, about the intellectual approach, providing information about different movement uh, mechanics and so on. And then we talked about this effective strategy, which is about having fun experiences. And and Scott provided some critique of this. And so we started exploring these movement experiences and what kind of movement experiences could be meaningful. And Scott started exploring how many of the meaningful experiences are actually quite challenging, even painful, we might say. So... Welcome back to the podcast, Scott. I would love to start a little bit deepening into these positive and negative experiences. So we know that challenging experiences could be part of this developing meaning in movement. But then we also know that negative experiences can really put some people off. And we know many people who say that they hated physical education and they never want to have anything to do with that anymore when they are uh, finished with it. How do we find somehow constructive challenging experiences that uh, we want to explore further and not just be done with it and do something else? (laughs) Well, the answer is very complicated. Uh, (laughs) Part of it has to do uh, with good teaching technique. And so people who go through very good... um, progression uh, kinds of analyses uh, have a leg up. So you definitely don't want to introduce something that's painful, impossible to the learner because frustration uh, and anger uh, occur immediately. But difficult doable is something different. So my progressions were always, if I had to go into a difficult domain, difficult doable so that uh, at least partial success 
could be experienced. Table tennis example. One of the basic shots in table tennis is called the push shot. It's a very, very simple uh, kind of backspin shot uh, that beginners would start with. So I would start with um, mechanics of how to do it, put them at the table very quickly. I, I like to have mostly activity, and I would have them just try it out a little bit. And then I would say, okay, stop. Uh, let's see if you can do 10 in a row without a mistake, hitting it off the table or into the net. And then they would go, and there'd be some laughter and some stuff going on. So I'm getting in repetitions. It's difficult. Um, and yet, it's not all that painful. And eventually, most of them get some success. We would get to the point where I'd say, okay, now we're going to do 100 of those. Count them out. Mm-hmm. See if you can do 100 without making a mistake. And so there are tricks you can use to get the repetitions in that you need to to ingrain the skill that's part of the building blocks to let them in the kingdom in the playground. So um, that would be uh, one kind of thing is just uh, being careful with the progressions. The other thing is more difficult because we live in a culture of instant gratification, impatience, and so forth. And as a teacher, I have to give them signals that some things, some gifts don't come that quickly. And I, as a longtime phys ed teacher, having taught basketball, distance running, golf, tennis, so forth, there are no magical buttons out there that I know of. I mean, you have in a range of students, some gifted motor kids who pick it up quickly, and you've got some kids who are very slow at motor things, and they don't. And um, you have to keep uh, going at it. So I think teachers have to reset their own clocks first not just toward the short-term fun or the short-term enjoyment, but toward longer-term objectives. And they have to make their lesson plans that way. They have to make their planning process that way. What steps do we have to take to get the person down the road far enough? You know, you can use the metaphor so they're over the hump (laughs) in that sport. But, you know, so many kids report what you say. They don't like to sweat. They don't like to do sit-ups, boring as hell, Uh, and they don't like two weeks of badminton where they've learned a few of the rules and they know enough to know they're terrible at it. Now let's go on to another sport, and we can spend two weeks having a bad experience there. So uh, I'm a fan of more long-term, slower progressions. Um, We've had sports psychologists come to talk at Penn State under Dorothy Harris's name. We have a, a, a given lecture there, and one of them came and talked about uh, developing persistence in exercise. She was an exercise psychologist, and uh, somebody uh, raised a question about an activity, and her response was, no, that would not be a good activity because the heart rates aren't high enough. I raised my hand and said, let me let me give you a for instance. Would you like to give a person a high heart rate activity like jogging at a high speed or something that they'll do the rest of their life that's a little bit lower heart rate, <laughs> but they're doing it when they're 75 years old when they quit their activity that you gave them after six months? So it's more complicated than just finding high heart rate. Any of us can any of us can do that. <laughs> the trick is changing a person's life 
So they want to stay in relationship with the movement domain. In a nutshell, that's the problem we face. Yeah. And I think now also with well-being researchers, there is more discussion about, you know, a hedonistic society, instant gratification. What you talked about is not a meaningful society. So thinking about hedonistic versus eudaimonic well-being that actually for us and the other strand of research is looking at these positive and negative experiences. And sometimes these negative experiences or challenging experiences are actually very important for meaning because those are the ones that trigger us to reflect as well. So I think we're on the same page with that. We are. Some of the hedonistic philosophers have uh, provided some good literature on that. They don't like to use the word pleasure because that has the connotation of eating candy bars and, you know, having really upbeat. They like to use the word satisfaction. So I'm a hedonist in the sense that I teach towards satisfaction. Now, some of the satisfying things may be damn tough, but others might be a little bit easier. And so I I think on the meaning side of things, we want to have a satisfying experience, even if it's hard. Now, if it can be pleasurable and satisfying, great. I have nothing against candy bars and uh, having a good time. Uh, but sometimes it isn't. But the bottom line is it needs to be satisfying. It needs to be, okay, it was a tough class today, but I'm proud of myself for getting through it. Or I'm glad I I stuck it out uh, if, it's, if it's a difficult uh, kind of lesson. So... One of my teachers, I want to give her credit, was Eleanor Matheny, and she's not read much anymore. Uh, her uh, magnum opus was Movement and Meaning, and I recommend it to any of your listeners. Um, if you haven't read the book, if you can get a hold of it. She and Howard Slusher were two of my teachers in graduate school, and Matheny was the one that got under my skin uh, more than Dr. Slusher. He was good, too. But she was interested in this very question. The way she would phrase it is, how do we make a movement mean? And uh, as a 21-year-old, when I started graduate school, I didn't get the significance of that right away, but it grew on me, obviously. And uh, that is, I owe her a lot, and I wanted to make sure that I gave her some credit for uh, what she's done. And, you know, all of us who have had good fortune in kinesiology as researchers and writers stand on the shoulders of people. And Eleanor Matheny is one of them that I stand on. Yeah, I absolutely recommend her book as well. I came across it as a student. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, relevant to our conversation here in bringing her name up, you know, she talked about exercise, dance, and sport as three main domains of movement. And one of her mantras was that movement is symbolically significant. It carries us to other ideas. Uh, I think it works best in dance, uh, like um, you know, traditional local dances and so forth. They carry history. They carry significance related to the local culture. And so it's not just a mechanical movement. You get carried away to the symbolic significance of it. Many of our kids have parents who were tennis players or whatever. And when they play tennis, it has symbolic meaning because it's associated with their family and things that they did together, or they went on hikes together, or they did things together. And so Matheny was very sharp in understanding how 
the significance of what happens in the gym is dependent partly on the significance of their previous life, what happened outside the gym. And that's another trick. So when I'm always looking for good activities for any population that I'm teaching, the first thing I want to find out is what's the milieu that they grew up in? What are the traditions in their town or in their part of the country or wherever they're from? And it would be stupid if I didn't build on those uh, because symbolic meanings are ripe for plucking right off the tree. Uh, if uh, it's a skiing culture, for example. Yeah, and we talked about our shared love for stories and, and life stories already in the first part. And I, being a runner myself, I always also enjoyed reading the fiction or running, like the loneliness of the long-distance runner and then the more contemporary <laughs> stuff that gives you kind of puts that activity in the cultural context and with all the politics and all the other stuff that is going on around this kind of very mundane activity as well. So I wonder if you have any of any stories that are your favorite, for example, in relation to golf, that is something that is dear to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, golf is my nemesis. <laughs> uh, I love it and hate it. I have a love-hate relationship with golf. But yes, um, the stories we tell um, are important. And, you know, one of the One of the ways linguistically that I would tell my students that you know you've gotten your your own students from just doing an activity to being a performer in that activity, somebody who really loves it, is how they describe themselves. You know, if they say I play table tennis, that's one thing. If they say I'm a I'm a table tennis player, that's another. That means it's part of their story. You know, describe yourself. I'm a table tennis player. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's how it seeps under our skin and becomes part of our story if we do it long enough. And we do it with a degree of success. You know, it doesn't have to be excellence, but a degree of success. And we're still working on improving. Then we describe ourselves. I am a golfer. I am a table tennis player. So, uh, yeah, uh, golf is a problem for me because I wanted to be a professional baseball player when I was younger. That was my sport. My dad was a baseball coach, and I had some success in baseball, and I was going to go into the major leagues. I blew out my shoulder, so I decided to go to graduate school instead. <laughs> so I guess in hindsight, you might say that was a blessing in disguise. So I picked up other activities beside baseball when I couldn't play that uh, at a high level anymore, and golf was one of them. Well, baseball and golf don't mix very well in certain motor respects, at least in my body. Uh -huh. And so I've been trying to exercise my baseball self and inculcate my golf self. And I'm 77 years old and I'm still working on it. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it's I love the challenge of golf. I love the camaraderie. Mm. And so, again, Our movement domains are so complex. You know, it's not just hitting the ball down the middle of the fairway, which is a great experience. It's yakking with the three other guys who are with me uh, about their shot that went into the woods. And uh, so, you know, this, there's a, we humans are very complex creatures who fall in love for multiple kinds of ways. And some of the great books written on golf talk about the social element of golf. It's it's easy to be social in golf. It's not so easy in some other sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, 
one more theme that I'd love to touch upon is that you've also contributed quite significantly to the literature on sport and spirituality, and you've also explored sport from a theological perspective. And so one of the works is the paper you wrote on uh, together with Nick Watson on Chesterton and uh, mm-hmm. and sport, uh, where you explored the idea of sport as play, sport as work, and then Christian perspectives on this. And as you have pointed out, um, some philosophers and theologians have somewhat paradoxically considered play as the most useless, but also the mm-hmm. most important thing in our lives. So perhaps we can start from this paradox. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I'm a, I call myself a holistic philosopher. So, you know, mind, body, uh, I love Eastern philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the things that science is finding out is that meaning is medicine. Just having a meaningful life, having goals, having loved ones, uh, caring about things is medicinal. And I don't mean just in terms of depression and suicide, which is an obvious kind of connection, but in terms of our chemistry and genetic expression and so forth. A happy person, a person who loves life is going to do better on average than a person who doesn't like life and finds it boring or distasteful or whatever. And so um, I like the, the holistic idea of useless play. The more useless it is, the more medicinal it is, if you're worried about medicinal things. So there's a paradox there. I want to live play as simply something I do that has no purposes whatsoever. It's, I can't stay away from it. I hear the the siren call in my ear and I've got to go there to golf or I've got to go there to do whatever. And if I have a life like that, it's going to have spinoff benefits in multiple kinds of ways. And one of the fun ways that I tease my physiologists about is biochemical ways. And so as whole people, we want to be happy people. We want to be. Theologically, I should tell your listeners that uh, in my retirement, I'm a pastor of a church now. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm not retired really, but I love it. I've always been a spiritual person. Uh, I'm not dogmatic about you have to be spiritual in one way or another. With my students at Penn State and at Brockport before I came here, we would always go to a Zen center. There's a famous one in Rochester, and we would do a day-long workshop uh, on meditation uh, in Zen Buddhist tradition. Uh, I was raised Christian, and so I'm in a Christian church right now. The theology of play is huge. For any of you who have been in that literature, there are dozens of books written on the theology of play. I like Chesterton. He's fantastic. He's funny. He's droll. Uh, he's brilliant. Uh, if you want a, a fun read, uh, read Orthodoxy, uh, because it's one of his classic books. And he does talk about the dual spiritual reality that we theological people, Christians in particular, live in, because he's a Christian. One is um, because of grace, we live in a playground, and we should enjoy this creation, enjoy our lives like no other people on the face of the earth. We should be the best players God created, okay? But there's another side to the spiritual life, 
and that is uh, helping the kingdom to come to come. That is obligations to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. get rid of suffering, you know, disease and so forth that mar this world and make it anything but a garden of Eden. And so Christians live a, a passionate life in two different directions at the same time toward maximal play and toward maximal duty. And Chesterton's the kind of guy who says, well, that doesn't make, you know, people will say that doesn't make any sense. That's a contradiction. Well, Chesterton lives on paradox. And um, he thinks that's one of the beautiful paradoxes of being a spiritual person. You can play to the utmost and you can work with the most dedication possible. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a nice uh, orientation because one thing we haven't talked about is how risky and dangerous play is. Uh, it can take over your life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got a couple of friends that are on the verge of that. Uh, you know, you forget that you also have obligations, you have duties, and you want to make the world a better place for your having been here. Uh, <laughs> but play can. Uh, can take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about this disappointment that you know when we go out and we do whatever our chosen activity is, sometimes it doesn't somehow open up. Maybe you got a good workout and something like this, but this playful element somehow didn't appear. And so what you're saying is also another thing is that we kind of use our freedom, so we choose to play in order to lose it so we want to be carried away we want to be encountering mm-hmm. something otherness or something beyond that kind of takes us on and carries us to some new place that is beyond mm-hmm. our control and our active production of of that yeah i mean we're we're protected in one sense because biological needs bring us back to reality don't they <laughs> we have we have to sleep we have to eat you know and so forth so but there are people that uh, minimize that and then get back to their playground and neglect other things uh, so bernard suits you know who's uh, so famous in games and play literature you know jokes about those kinds of things that players who neglect their families and so forth because they're so wrapped up in the game. And, uh, you know, I, I can identify with that. I think I guilty as charged from time to time. <laughs> but uh, I suppose uh, the mature adult life has to balance to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I also had an interesting conversation with a researcher who was looking at the retirement experiences of collegiate athletes. And we'd often think that there is some sadness and sense of loss. But And on the other hand, there is. But she also talked about the sense of liberation and, and the opportunity to explore. So actually, there can be this positive element that now you are again free to play. You don't need to do mm-hmm. what your coach is telling you, but you can actually do whatever you want you can go up to the mountain or you know do a long bike ride or anything that you were not allowed to do because it will interfere with your performance in the next match so there is this positive element of some sense of freedom regained in athletic retirement for some sure and that's the problem with workaholics you know where where they live constantly with this overlay of responsibility and they they have a hard time relaxing. They have a hard time letting go. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, people who have been raised in that culture or with family members, perhaps parents who are overbearing, um, 
it's a sad situation. It's hard to get out of that. You know, maybe people, we should have more play counselors <laughs> to talk to people who are workaholics and say, you know, you have a disease, <laughs> but it's curable. And so let's work on it over the next year uh, to get your spirit turned around a little bit mm -hmm. uh, so, so you can really, as you say, get carried away by some playgrounds mm -hmm. and not feel bad about it. Enjoy it. Some people, when they go on vacation, they tell me, you know, I'm going to take a month off. And these are real workaholic people like in my department up at Penn State. And they'll say, you know, Scott, it took me over two weeks to relax. And then the last two weeks were fun. But, I, it, you know, they had to decompress. And um, we have to be careful about how work can take over our lives and change our attitudes and our spirit. So, yeah. I, I, if any of your listeners want to become play therapists, I think it's a great profession. <laughs> There's a practical <laughs> tip. But I also think we might need some play therapists in the world of sport and exercise because we also discussed about how this instrumental approach to exercise and how many minutes and what is the most useful way of you know, getting the maximum benefits in the shortest amount of time. This is also not very producive of these kind of play play experiences. So I think also our sport and exercise culture needs some reimagination along the lines of how you, for example, beautifully write about play. Yeah, yeah, we can re-envision our, our uh, field. And, you know, you write the quantification uh, kind of mantra that we have in our field. How many minutes of time on task What was your heart rate relative to maximal heart rate? How many calories did you spend a day? Um, you know, those those measurements are useful and they're not irrelevant, but I wouldn't focus on those. I would have those be byproducts. Mm -hmm. yeah. So one, one task I gave myself that I've talked about before uh, when I was teaching table tennis is what drives me crazy is teachers who talk too much. You know, they stand there, yak, yak, yak about how to hit a ball or how to catch a ball and so forth. And the kids are growing bored, bored, bored. They want to play. They want to try it out and see if they can do it. So I gave myself the test one day to go into table tennis and teach a whole lesson without saying one word. And it went great. <laughs> I had to gesture and so forth. But, you know, I think the I wouldn't do it all the time. But Uh, I wanted to see whether I could teach a, a productive lesson without talking. Mm -hmm. And it worked. You know, I could gesture, demonstrate, guide people around and so forth without overly verbalizing. Um, you know, somehow in our teacher prep classes, we're, we're taught that, you know, if you tell them how to do it, they'll be able to do it. That's not true. Uh, you know, anybody who's taught a skill knows that it could help. Uh, possibly, <laughs> but, you know, telling a person how to hit a top spin in table tennis doesn't work because they don't have the feel yet. They don't know what how to translate that into a motor sensation. And so um, other techniques would occur. I would often go behind a person and say, is it okay if I grab your hand here? Uh, and somebody on the other side would be hitting a ball. And I, they do it 10 times and I would help guide their hand through the stroke so they could feel in terms of their musculature, their, their kinesthetic feel, what it was like to hit a topspin shot. Uh, 
And then I would let go. And lo and behold, they could do it. Or sometimes I had to grab on again <laughs> and, uh, you know, help them through the moment. But I could talk for 10 minutes about the physics of topspin, about where you start the bat and where you end up with the bat. And, you know, all of this verbalization about why topspin is the, the game in table tennis. And uh, I could short circuit that by saying, is it okay if I hold on to your hand here and let's hit some together? And then they got it and uh, they got the feel. So there are ways to um, short circuit and to get to the playground quicker. Uh Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Just going back to theology, the theological perspectives and I'd also, my background is that I've done a master's in theology before moving to the field of sports science and sports psychology. And so, <laughs> yeah, I can wait. It's it's a while since I've read the literature, but so reminded me some of my theology studies when I was reading your paper. And as you point out, then what I also remember from my theology studies is that there are some suspicious views on the bodily pleasures and earthly pleasures uh, in 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 the theology literature but then perhaps now in more recent times there is this more positive view on embodiment this more positive view on on these earthly pleasures such as sport and Mm -hmm. play and so those interested who would you suggest to start reading and exploring for those who are interested in looking into it in more detail Oh, boy. Um, Sam Keen, K-E-E-N, has written about three or four books on wonder, and he's a a very sensuous kind of guy. Harvey Cox, Mm -hmm. uh, I think a book called The Seduction of the Spirit, if I remember correctly. Um, Those would be two names uh, that uh, come to the fore. But you're right. uh, There's a much more relaxed attitude from what we Americans would call an old puritanical attitude. The body's bad, you know, the sins of the flesh and all of those things that St. Paul writes about. Um, But yeah, it's, um, I think another thing that we underplay in our teaching is the sensuous aspect of sport. Sport is really, really sensuous and not in a sexy sense necessarily, but in a a feel, uh, smell. I love the smell of my leather baseball glove. <laughs> I would I would sniff it. I would put it up to my face and say, "Oh yes, that's a leather uh, that you know brought back all kinds of memories of my father and so forth." Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, sport is wonderfully sensuous, and um, I would point that out sometimes in you know in teaching a class. Do you see how easy that is? How it flows? You know when you hit a ball like that. You know, and before it was jerky and an effort mm-hmm. and now that you've got the knack it's it flows and it's so easy doesn't that feel good and uh you know it's that's part of the meaningfulness i think of, of sport is enjoying our bodies enjoying harmonizing with the world you know that's sort of the eastern approach mm-hmm. is that instead of seeing that opponent out there as something that's against you harmonize with it mm-hmm. find a way to harmonize with that and I had a cross-country coach in uh, college, uh, ran cross-country, and he was anything but Zen Buddhist. He was the antithesis of Zen Buddhist. And he would say at the bottom of a hill, now Kretschmar, pick it up on the hill, pick it up on the hill. 
And I wanted to say, coach, it's harder to run uphill <laughs> than to run downhill. It hurts to run uphill if I pick up the pace. A Zen Buddhist would be totally different. You know, he would use different imagery. You know, when you go uphill, you slow down naturally. And when you go downhill, you pick up like water running downhill. Uh, intuit the rightness of the run at that moment. And uh, you'll do better. And so uh, that's sort of another spiritual kind of a approach that emphasizes the sensual and, um, you know, getting getting into a harmonious relationship. If you're in a harmonious relationship with your sport environment, you're in a good position. <laughs> you're in a good place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned about your love of William James in the first part. And I also revisited his work last year and managed to get through the varieties of religious experience. Quite <laughs> <Yeah>. heavy book. <laughs> But so yes. I think it's inspirational to think of when he's talking about writing about what does religious experience mean in a world where people are have quite different convictions and not everybody is within that Christian uh, framework anymore. And some of the experiences he talks about, I think we can quite easily think about movement culture and those things that people do walking up to mountains and you know all of these have this mm -hmm. traditional spiritual imagery so there is a lot of potential for this imagination for our physical cultures also through this more spiritual lens yeah at the little church that i'm a pastor at we're redoing the outdoors it's on a beautiful creek outside state college it's a famous creek uh, trout fishing stream and um we're rehabbing it to make it a beautiful area. It was full of weeds and, you know, underbrush and so forth. And the idea is to do just what you say, to have some outdoor with nature uh, spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of places to meet the divine. And uh, outdoors is one. And uh, on a tennis court is another. <laughs> and so... Uh, For those who believe there's a spiritual presence in some mysterious way that exists in the world uh, and that that presence is all-pervasive, it doesn't just exist in churches or temples or synagogues, um, yeah, you can uh, access things that are, are special in a spiritual sense. Yes, I think those are wonderful closing words. The conversation gave me so much to think about, a lot of inspiration and I'm sure it will be so for our listeners as well. Thank you so much, Scott, yeah, for taking the time to talk to me. Well, Nora, very uh, enjoyable experience, and you asked very good questions, and uh, you've done a lot of good reading yourself. So uh, I'm glad you're doing these podcasts and uh, asking such intelligent and probing questions. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in 
Thank you all for your support and have a great day.